0: Good evening. Let's turn in the word of God to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. It is good to be with you again in the name of our Lord. We always enjoy coming to Boulevard and seeing our many friends and brothers and sisters here. And I neglected to mention when we go to Peru, we're going to be mainly working with a brother who has a connection to Boulevard, Brother Joel Clark. So uh, we'll give Joel your greetings, if that's okay by you, and uh, Brother Joel does a lot of the speaking, and some of the Peruvian brethren also do speaking. It's like a Bible school for the month of January. Brother Mark Hartley has been down there the first half. He and I are like ships passing. He's he's leaving, I'm coming in, and so we've got a lot uh, upcoming starting uh, this weekend. Speaking of connections, uh, yes. going to award Yes, Lord willing, we're going to Tim and Yoli in Seoul in November, I believe. Naomi can, yeah, Naomi's nodding. <laughs> Naomi uh, tells me where I have to be. So it's kind of like, you know, certain people like Elvis had people that got him up and told him, okay, put this on, go here, go there. I'm not like Elvis, but uh, Naomi is like that toward me. She keeps me straight. So I'm thankful to the Lord for a good, organized wife, and that's uh, exactly what I need. So I'm thankful. Isaiah chapter 40, now there were some of the brethren here who were with us for the Florida Men's Bible Study up at Camp Horizon a few weeks ago, and we did the second half of the book of Isaiah from chapter 40 through 66. It'll be a relief to those of you who that is uh, applicable to know that I wasn't assigned any of the passages I'm speaking from tonight, so this isn't repeat in that sense, okay, so you're getting a new material Uh, But I'll put in a plug, Lord willing, next January, uh, starting on the 2nd, I believe, we're having the Florida Men's Bible Study again up at Camp Horizon. And it's something that, as I've been going around assemblies in Florida, there's a lot of men that say, you know, we only heard about this after the fact. Now, you don't have that excuse. There are people from this assembly that come to it. Uh, But just a friendly reminder, come on up, study the Word of God. It's a unique thing. To be able to take a few days like that, where we, we usually run for about three and a half days or so if you add it all up, and to spend all day long with some breaks in the Word of God, and even in the conversations you have in between sessions, it's just a unique opportunity to get together, and the fellowship is great. and. They literally kill the fatted pig at one stage most years. So a lot of good stuff happens there. And you can check out the recordings on Camp Horizon's website. Just Google uh, Camp Horizon and you'll find the Florida Men's Bible Study messages there. Okay, enough commercials. Isaiah chapter 40. Let's read in the Word of God. We'll start at verse 9. Isaiah 40 and verse 9. O Zion, that bring us good tidings... Get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings. Lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Now, what I want to speak to you about tonight is the Lord and idols, the Lord and idols. These, of course, are things that are opposing. An idol is a made up God. It is a false God or it is something that you put in the place of the true and living God, a counterfeit God, if you will. Something that isn't the real thing, but it takes away your affections or you put your confidence in it when it ought to be God whom you're looking to and in whom you're confiding. Isaiah has a lot to say against idols, right from the first chapter, actually. At the end of the first chapter, he tells them that they're going to be ashamed of the terebinth trees that they've chosen. That is not a statement that is primarily about botany. It's not that they were planting the wrong kind of trees in their yard and God took issue with that. No, These trees were associated with idolatry. And in chapter 2, the Lord envisions a day when the day of the Lord transpires. And the day of the Lord really involves two things. Number one, the Lord is exalted in glory. So the beginning of Isaiah 2, all nations are flowing unto Jerusalem. Everyone's coming up to worship the Lord. They're saying, let's go learn about the Lord. We want to know more about him. We want to worship him. But at the end of the chapter, you find out that there's also another group of people that have trusted in idols, that have trusted in false gods, that have turned away from the true and living God and said, No, I'll take gods of my own preference, of my own devising, gods that I like, gods that make sense to me. I'll worship those. And yet, when the Lord arises in his glory, when he comes to reign on this earth, they're going to take their gods and they're going to throw them into the holes and the caves of the earth with the bats and the moles. Now, it's always great when the wild crats get on their creature power suits and when they can go down in the holes with the moles and the bats and they can see what happens down there. But most of us aren't too comfortable in subterranean lairs. And you can imagine the glory of these so-called gods. And yet they're being tossed into holes and caves. And people are actually crying out in Isaiah 2 to the mountains, let them fall on us. And that sentiment is echoed in Revelation 6 when they say hide us from the face of him who sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. What a terrible thing. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John one twenty nine. The Lamb who could have been their Lamb, their Savior. The Lamb who says, I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou done for me? The one who says, I shed my blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin, 1 John 1, seven. And instead of enjoying the Lamb as their protector, as their substitute, as their Savior, their redeemer their lamb becomes their judge because sooner or later everybody is going to have to deal with the Lord Jesus he's either going to be your savior you're going to be glad to see him because you're saying here comes my deliverance here I'm going to be rescued here I'm going to be taken out of this place this mess that we live in this fallen world I'll be taken even out of this body that is still afflicted by sin. I'll be taken out of the struggle of the spirit and the flesh battling against each other. And I'll be taken to glory to the Father's house to be forever with the Lord. It'll be a time of joy for many. But for others, not so joyous. For others, wanting to hide, and yet there'll be no hiding because the heavens and the earth are going to flee away from the face of this one, the Bible says. So when we come to this section of Isaiah in particular, starting in chapter 40 and really going on all the way through the 40s, God really does a number on the idols and he does it in this way. He does it by number one, exalting his glory, showing you how much better than the idols the Lord is. And then secondly, he looks at the idols and he shows how absurd they are. Now, it would be a bit like comparing Taco Bell and my wife's cooking. My wife is an extremely good cook, and I have nothing against Taco Bell in principle. You know, there was a time in my life in college when Taco Bell kept me alive. I mean, what other place can you dig through the cushions of your sofa and come up with spare change and have enough for supper? You know, I never forget one time I I came to the guys next door in the room and we were going to order a pizza of all things. And I said, guys, all I have is a 20. Does anybody have change? And they gave me the nickname big money on the spot. It stuck with me through the rest of my collegiate experience. You know, just one of those things. College students love Taco Bell. And yet, if you could come to our house and eat fajitas the way my wife makes them, or you could eat chicken marsala the way she makes it, or spaghetti for that matter, or any number of other things, we do amazing homemade pizza. The hot pepper pizza is to die for, and it just might kill you if you're not like me. But anyway, my wife is a fantastic cook. And I could say to you, well, there's two ways we could approach this. Number one, we could go to Taco Bell and we could read about the nutritional value of what you get at Taco Bell. Now, a beef Mexamelt or a Taco Bell Chalupa is not exactly the most nutritious food that's ever been invented. Okay, Uh, but my wife's cooking, on the other hand. She was raised right by her mom, Sue Scott. I hope my mother-in-law hears this recording. She was raised right that you eat a well-balanced meal. And so my wife's always talking about protein versus carbohydrates, and you had to have a vegetable, and you had to have a fruit, and these are just laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be changed, you know? So we could talk about how bad Taco Bell is from a nutritional point of view. We could talk about how good my wife's food is from a nutritional point of view. We could talk about it from the aesthetic point of view. My wife's cooking looks better. In fact, my wife looks better than anybody I've ever seen working at Taco Bell. No (laughs) offense that there's any Taco Bell employees here. But anyway, uh, you know, you see the point I'm making. You can make a comparison and you look at how beautiful something is. In comparison to how ugly something else is. You can look at how useful something is. What it can do for you. Versus how useless something else is. How it's vanity. It's empty. And that word vanity and vain. Emptiness. Futility. Is associated throughout the Bible. Particularly in the Old Testament. With idolatry. Now you might say. Well Keith this is obviously an Old Testament problem. I will remind you. The epistle of 1 John ends in chapter 5 in the final verse saying, Little children, keep yourself from idols. Because idolatry is as much a temptation in the church age as it has ever been in any previous dispensation or will be in the future for that matter. Because as one old Christian writer once said, the human heart is a natural idol factory. It makes idols. That's just what we do. We always want to look to someone or something as our confidence. If you don't believe me, just consider all the rhetoric that surrounds any election held in this country. There are always people that say, I've got the plan. I'm going to solve this. I'm going to do that. I don't care which party it is, which candidate it is. I'm not endorsing anybody tonight. I'm just saying in our world today, there are men and women who stand up and they say, look to me I've got the answers. But you know what? There are problems that go beyond men and women. There are problems that are too big for a human being to handle. There are problems that, frankly, only God can solve. And to begin with, God has created this world to focus on himself, not on us. So whenever we get our eyes off of the Lord onto someone else or something else, and that's where our confidence is, We've we've strayed into the realm of idolatry. Now, the Lord here, first of all, in chapter 40, talks about his greatness. And I want to examine that for a few moments. And then I want to go on and look at the idols. And by contrast, see how worthless they are. We're not going to hit all of the passages, even in if you took, let's say, from chapter 40 through chapter 50, you would have numerous passages That are condemning the idols and that are exalting the Lord. So this is kind of a principle that keeps going through this whole section of the word of God. There's this juxtaposition of the glory of the Lord versus the uselessness and the absurdity of the idols. But we're just going to look in chapter 40 tonight and also in chapter 41 and a bit in 44 and maybe make sidelong glances at a couple other chapters as we go along. But first... The Lord sets forth His glory. Now, I can't ever read Isaiah 40 without thinking of Handel's Messiah. Most of the chapter is in Handel's Messiah. So I've always got a soundtrack running in the back of my head. And don't worry, I won't sing for you tonight. But it's wonderful how it starts out. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Because this was a nation that was feeling very threatened. That was under the thumb of the Assyrians and the Babylonians were on the horizon and there were other nations around like Egypt and Moab and Edom and and these other places and Ammon. And what should we do about this geopolitical scenario? And they were filled with fear, much like the modern state of Israel is at this very moment. I mean, living in a very hostile part of the world, the Middle East, which, of course, is tumultuous. And there's all kinds of fighting and storm and stress going on there. And here the powers of the world are getting together and ironically trying to divide up Jerusalem even. But the Lord here looks forward to a time when Jerusalem is going to be far different Because Jerusalem is called, in Psalm 48, the city of the great king. And here in Isaiah 40, the great king is going to be in his city. He is going to be ruling and reigning there. He's going to come with great power. You see what it says here in verse 10? Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. So there's that sense of strength It's talking about the arm of the Lord. And that's an interesting study all by itself to follow that phrase and that idea through the book of Isaiah. And you'll remember, that's how Isaiah 53.1 begins, isn't it? Who hath believed our, our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, here comes the Lord with his mighty arm, the one who is omnipotent. He's all powerful, that is to say. And what's the first thing it talks about him doing? Verse 11. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. That's a wonderful image. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently leave they that are with young. Now, there are some leaders that have come across the world stage that are manifestly very powerful in their day and generation. I mean, Yosef Stalin wielded a lot of power, didn't he? He killed people by the many millions in his own country. I mean, at his word, people were taken out and killed. Here was a man who had great power, but he didn't wield that well, did he? To have that much power invested in Joseph Stalin meant tyranny and actually meant terror for the people that lived in the Soviet Union, in the country over which he was ruling. Contrast the Lord Jesus. The one who has all power in heaven and earth, he comes to rule. And what does he do? He takes care of the sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, says the 23rd Psalm. The Lord Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And with all of his power, how does he apply that? He applies it to taking care of the sheep. Uh, What kind of sheep? Well, even right down to the lambs, the little ones, the young ones, the ones that are very vulnerable. Now, did you ever see the old movie in the 1930s with Boris Karloff, Frankenstein? You know the story that Mary Shelley wrote, and it's been turned into a number of films. But I still like that old one with Karloff. It still gives me goosebumps. But there's a part of that movie I always hated as a kid. And I still don't like it as an adult. And that is that Frankenstein's kind of wandering, the monster that is, is wandering the country. And he's kind of cast out. And he meets this little girl who's blind. And she befriends him. And inadvertently, he kills her because he's so strong. He doesn't mean to, but being with him, she ends up getting killed and he gets blamed for it and the villagers come at him with pitchforks and torches. That kind of thing can happen. We know how that can be. And yet uh, they come after him, you know, and in a sense it's great power that he's unable to control. Now think of the Lord. He has this great power, but it's completely controlled so that he can pick up this lamb. He can pick up this weak little offspring of the sheep. This one that's very tender and young. And he carries it. Where does he carry it? He carries it not upon his shoulder. That would connote strength. And the Lord uses that image in the Gospels when he's talking about bringing back the sheep that strayed. Right? But here he says he carries it in his bosom. He carries that sheep close to his heart. Where it's going to stay warm. Where it's going to be protected. Where it's near his love. That's how the Lord applies his power. So a lot of times when we tell the gospel to people, they say, well, I'm not sure I want the Lord to get a hold of my life. I mean, he might wreck it, right? I mean, isn't God all powerful? You should only break him out if you really, really need him, right? I mean, if I was on an airplane about to crash, maybe I'd want God around then. But in my everyday life, won't God kind of mess around with it? And won't I be the poorer for it? And we say, no, no, you don't know God. That when he comes into your life, as he's shown in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new, as Second Corinthians 5.17 says. And he does an extreme makeover for the better. That you have any kind of good that God created you for, but that has been marred by sin. And you've been unable to achieve what God has wanted for you. In Christ, the Lord makes you a new person. And in Christ, he develops you and he gives you acceptance and he shares his glory with you. Oh, what a tremendous savior is our Lord. Now, that's the kind of rule he has. And he begins to talk about his glory in this chapter. So you listen to how he describes this glory. He says here in verse 14. Uh, rather, uh, verse 13: Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the aisles as a very little thing. So you think about the wisdom of the Lord, and he says, did he have to go to the, the U? I mean, did he have to go to Nova Southeastern or FIU or FAU or, you know, Florida State or whatever your school of choice is? I hope I'm hitting it today. Emmaus Bible College there for your brother Dave. Anyway, the answer, of course, is no. Nobody taught the Lord. Here is one who has all knowledge. He's omniscient. And he has the kind of knowledge coupled with this power that you could take all of the nations, all of the the sages and the wise men and the Socrates and Aristotles and Democritus and Plato and all these sorts of people. and, And they don't come up to what the Lord is. You could take the extent of the earth and it's like a little sandbox. It's not even that compared to what God is. He's so great. He's so powerful. All nations before him are as nothing, verse 17 says. They are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? This is the problem, right? This is why the second command of the Ten Commandments told us in Exodus 20, not to make a graven image of God. Don't try to reproduce what God looks like. Because guess what? Rembrandt can't do it. Michelangelo can't do it. Da Vinci can't do it. Bill Gates with all of his teams of scientists and their holograms and whatever other technology they have can't do it. You can't replicate or reproduce or make anything remotely like God. And then he starts to talk about the idols. Verse 19. The workman melts a graven image and the goldsmith spreads it over with gold and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation, chooseth the tree that will not rot. Because after all, it's a bad thing when your God gets termites. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. That's what people do all the time. They take material things, things that may look beautiful to them, like these images were covered in gold and silver and stones. And they say, oh, look how great my God is. But he says... How do you compare that to God? Verse 21, have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sits on the circle of the earth. So for all of those people who think about how dumb people in the Bible were and how uh, people believed in a flat earth back then and all that, I would point out here that Isaiah tells us about the circle of the earth. Okay? Okay. He's quite aware, he's not giving a textbook on astronomy, of course, but he's quite aware of the nature of the creation. That's what the Lord is revealing here. And here, the Lord is outside of his creation. He's above the earth. And the inhabitants thereof, verse 22, are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. Imagine that you look at God and how much bigger than the earth is. What are human beings like in comparison? Well, they're like itty bitty bugs like grasshoppers. You remember when Israel was in the wilderness and they came to the edge of Canaan and they sent in the spies to go see what the land was like. And they came back and they brought their report and they said, bad news. There's some really tall guys that live in that land. I mean, they're really tall. How tall are they? Well, you know what? In their sight, we look like grasshoppers, which always makes me laugh because I can't imagine they actually flagged one down and said, excuse me, what do you think I look like? Oh, a grasshopper? Okay, good. We'll write that down. (laughs) No, it's closer to the truth in Numbers 13 when they say, and such we are in our own sight. You know, that's how they felt. They felt very small, very inadequate, very much like little little, itty bitty girly men, you know, just like little bugs in comparison to those giants, Well, guess what? You can take the giants, you can take the biggest, strongest, smartest, most able, most impressive human beings, and they don't come up to how big God is in every sense of that word bigness. Because God is spirit, so really to speak in him in spatial terms isn't quite right. But we know what we're saying. We're saying this is a God who's smarter, stronger, better, Morally superior, more glorious in every sense of the word. So how can you take something made and compare it to him? Paul makes the same point in Acts 17. We know that the Almighty is not like things made with hands, not like things that men can make with their fingers. No, he's the God who created every one of us. In him we live and move and have our being, Paul says. We can't reduce him to this little image. He brings the princes to nothing, verse 23. He makes the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them and they shall wither. And the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. So you don't like an administration that's ruling over this earth, be it an American one or be it at some other country. Don't worry. They're all going to pass away. They're all going to go by the wayside. That's why we can't put our faith in them. I mean, we respect them. The Lord has ordained the powers that be. We pray for them, 1 Timothy 2 says. First of all, that they come to know the Lord Jesus. Because the vast majority of the people ruling the world today don't even know Christ. They don't even know the Creator. They've never been born again. So we pray for them. We try to be good citizens and honor the Lord and be a testimony this way. But ultimately, we look at these governments and we say, you know what? You're going to pass away. It's like the Lord told Smyrna, that church that was being persecuted. He says, I am the first and the last. So I've been here a lot longer than the Romans, and I'm going to be here a lot longer than they will be. But I'm he that became dead. dead. I know what it's like to step into time. I know what it's like to be a human being. I know what it's like to suffer even unto death because the Son of God did just that. But I came to life again, he says. I also know what it's like to triumph over death. I also give you hope that transcends this world, transcends the persecution and the machinations of evil people and all the things they do against the saints. The Lord says, I've got this under control to whom then will you liken me, verse 25, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out the host by number? He calleth them all by names in the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. The image is of the Lord calling out the stars. Come on now, Doctorus. come on out. Come on out, Ursula Major and Minor and, you know, Andromeda and all these other constellations that we name. I mean, every year the astronomers are discovering more, right? Oh, so we've got to call that N231 or whatever they do. Listen, God already named them and numbered them long before our current crop of scientists were ever around. Do you realize that? David said in Psalm 8, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man... That thou dost visit him. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? That this great big God, who's absolutely incomparable in power, in strength, in wisdom, in glory. That he would have anything to do with the likes of us. Let alone become one of us. And say, you know what? I want to take you home with me. I want to take you to the Father's house. I want to bring many sons to glory. I want to be the captain of your salvation. I want to declare the name of my Father in the midst of the great congregation. I want to sing a song for you there and say, behold, I and the children whom God hath given me. That's all in Hebrews 2. You can read it. Beautiful, isn't it? He doesn't need us. He's so much bigger than us. He's so much out of our league. We can't even comprehend it. But he wants us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He wants us with him. Not because he needs us. Not because he lacks somehow without us. But he wants us. That's the grandeur, the glory, the beauty of this God. He says, why sayest thou, O Jacob, verse 27, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. That's how they were feeling in the 8th century B.C. God doesn't know what we're going through. God doesn't see how we're suffering. He doesn't realize our problems. He's unaware of the dangers we face. God says, no, that's not true. Have you not known, verse 28, have you not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth faints not, neither is weary. There's no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint and to them that have no might. He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. No matter how persecuted, no matter how beaten down by this world, no matter how downtrodden, no matter how weak from a human point of view, the Lord says, you know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to make you soar, And I'm going to make you walk. What a wonderful God we have. Well, let's consider the competition. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 22. The Lord challenges them, challenges the idolaters. Verse 22, Isaiah forty-one twenty-two. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things what they be that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare us things for to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that ye are gods, yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. He's telling the idols, now, please, tell us something about where we've come from. Tell us about the history of the world and all you've accomplished in the past. You ask a materialist today, who is an idolater, really, a materialist in the sense that they believe that what is real in the universe is material. Stuff. Things we can see and touch. People that are naturalists, in the sense that they think... That nature just appeared and occurred, and that controls everything. Where did the world come from? Well, they'll tell you, you know, 14, 15 billion years ago or so, there was this great big, big bang. And, you know, out of that big bang, this cluster of highly compacted dust and particles and whatever it was, there was this immense letting off of energy, and that formed all the planets and the stars and everything we see around it. Oh, that's wonderful, <laughs> Tell me, where did that come from? Well, we don't know. I mean, what caused the Big Bang to go boom? We don't know. You know, we have a world of people out there that don't know where we've come from. Now you ask them, where are we going? Line up ten cosmologists tonight. Say, what's going to happen to the world? One guy says, oh, global warming, man. I mean, we're using up the resources. We're heating up the planet. Things are going really bad here, you know. Our our planet's going to have drastic changes. The whole world will be like Florida. And then what's that going to do with the economy and the snowbirds? Where will the snowbirds go (laughs) when every place is like Florida? No, I'm kidding. They talk about all the catastrophes that will happen, you know, if we don't do something. Because, of course, we can do something. We can always do something. Doesn't Bruce Willis always win at the end of every movie? Or Clint Eastwood before him? (laughs) Well, oh, somebody else says, no, it's not that way at all. You know what? We're going to eventually get colder and colder and colder as a planet. And we're going to freeze. They were saying that back in the 70s when I was a little kid in elementary school. I still remember that. I don't know why. But huh, we're going to freeze today. Okay. Somebody else says, no, a big old asteroid's going to come along and hit planet Earth. <laughs> And a fourth person says, no, we're going to unleash nuclear conflagration on one another through all the warheads we have. Or we're going to unleash uh, biological toxins and chemical weapons like VX. And we'll all die that way. Oh, it all sounds like a plot from The Rock, right? Or, uh, you know, all those other adventure movies of the last 20 years. And these are some of the greatest minds on the planet. Where are we going? They don't have a clue. Any of the leaders of this world today, where are we going? They have no knowledge of it. No wonder, because when you worship idols, an idol can't really tell you your future. A horoscope isn't even an educated guess. It's flat out ignorance hoping to be lucky, right? And tarot cards and seances and palm readers and looking at the tea leaves and whatever other kind of ways men think they can prognosticate. Watch the stock market. Look at what gold's going to do. Silver, I don't know. Ask G. Gordon Libby, right? They don't know where the world's going. Because it's idols. And the Lord tells them, do something. Do good or do evil. Now, the interesting thing is elsewhere in the Old Testament, in Zephaniah, for example there were people living in Jerusalem in a later generation, the time of King Josiah, about 100 years after Isaiah, who were saying the Lord's not going to do good or he's not going to do evil. He's not going to do anything, in other words. And here God says, no, it's not me who's like that. I mean, I made the stars. I made planet Earth. I I have done all these things and will do more things. I'm going to bring in my glorious kingdom. These idols, they can't do a thing he says, they are vanity. You're nothing, verse 24. And your work is not an abomination, is he that of you. Well, quickly to chapter 44, please. Because this is really my favorite way to examine the idols. Isaiah 44, verse 9. And they that make a graven image are all of them vanity. And their delectable things shall not profit And they are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a god or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yea, they shall fear and they shall be ashamed together. The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals, and fashioneth with hammers, and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he's hungry, and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water, and is faint. Poor guy, he's working so hard, making this god for himself. The carpenter stretches out his rule, verse 13. He marks it out with a line. He fits it with planes. He marks it out with the compass, makes it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. I mean, you don't want an ugly old God, right? So make it look like a beautiful man, right? That can be what you look to, somebody charismatic and dynamic. He heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a God and worshipeth it. He maketh a graven image and falls down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire, and with part thereof he eateth flesh. He roasteth roast and is satisfied. Yea, he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm, I've seen the fire, and the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falls down unto it and worships it and prays to it and says, Deliver me, for thou art my god. Kind of stupid, right? That you've got this whole industry that Isaiah describes of growing trees to cut them down and to split the wood. And you take part of that tree and you get a cunning artificer, somebody who's really good with the woodworking tools, and he makes it into an idol for you. And there you put it in your house and you bow down to it and you worship it. Well, what happened to the other part of that tree? Oh, we cut that up for firewood and we cooked lunch over it. I see, okay. So you can make your chicken imperial and tostones over one part of the tree, and the other part of your tree is your God that you're praying to and saying, deliver me, right? I mean, that's rubbish, isn't it? That's absurdity. I've been in countries where I've seen people kissing statues and stocks and stones. And you say, that's a foolish thing to do. But people are a little more sophisticated in our country. You know, they put their confidence and their trust and their worship in all kinds of things that are just as false and absurd. I mean, fame, money, power in this world, all the things people run after. And ultimately, God would say to the idolater, they have not known, verse 18, nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see and their hearts that they cannot understand, and none considereth in his heart Neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I've burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also I've baked bread upon the coals thereof. I've roasted flesh and eaten it, and shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stalk of a tree? They're foolish. They're blind. They don't realize the powerlessness of it. And it's because, not because God doesn't want to save them or because God sovereignly does something to them that they can't know the falsity of it. It's because they've already made a decision. We don't want God. We want the idol. Thank you very much. We'd rather have any God but that Jesus Christ you talk about. Because after all, Jesus gets too close to home. He starts talking about sin. And we don't like that subject. He starts talking about hell. And we like that even less. So we don't want to hear about that. We want a God who's more manageable, a God who is like us, you know, a God who's tolerant. Well, tolerant of everything we want to do anyway, or tolerant of anything that doesn't get in my way of enjoying my pleasures or tolerant and won't tell me that I'm wrong. That's the kind of God men want today. And God says, that's an idol. It'll never save you. It won't really deliver you when the chips are down. And if you want to give yourself to idols, if that's the persistent bent of your heart, God will say, fine. Have that blindness. I can judicially blind you. I can give you over to that. You can have what you want, like Romans 1. He gives them over to the sins they want to pursue. But how much better when you think how beautiful the Lord is? Because repeatedly in these chapters, he, say, I, he says, I am the Lord. There's none else. I am the Redeemer. I'm the deliverer. I'm the savior. I'm the one who's the real deal. I can change your life. I can guide you through this tumultuous world. And I can take you to heaven at last. I can take you to the glory of being with me and of ruling and reigning one day with the Lord Jesus Christ. And men don't want it, of course, many at least. But thanks be to God for a remnant for some that say, yes, idols are nothing. Idols haven't done anything for me. They haven't delivered me. They haven't helped me. My money, my bank account, my job, my family, my friends, my fame. None of this. I want Christ. Give me the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank Thee for the Lord. We're thankful for what He is able to do for His great might and power. But we're thankful also for His heart of love, which longs to save And those of us who are believers tonight, we're thankful for a God who is wise, all wise. We're thankful for a God who is powerful, all powerful. We're thankful for a God who is present everywhere, that he says, I am with thee. We're so thankful for this, Father. We don't deserve it, but we receive it as thy gift. It is grace. And we pray that we would practically put our confidence in this God, not look to our leaders of this world, not look to our bosses not even look to our friends, but that we'd look to the Lord first of all. We pray this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.